Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Richard Davidson, the founder and director at the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is a pioneer of modern neuroscience and one of the world's foremost experts on the science of well-being. Richie is best known for his groundbreaking work studying emotion in the brain and is a friend and confidant of the Dalai Lama. Richie is also a great friend of Dora's and mine, and he's been on our podcast before, and we are so happy to welcome him back to talk about some of the new well-being tools the Center for Healthy Minds is offering to help all of us become more resilient and connected in this world. Richie, it's so great to have you back on Health Gig. There are so many new things to talk about, including your 501c3 Healthy Minds Innovations as well as your Healthy Minds program app, which is just so impressive. Trisha and I both have tried it and we love it. So to start things off, can you tell us how you came up with your 501c3? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. To give listeners a bit of context, I am a neuroscientist by training. And about 10 years ago, I founded the Center for Healthy Minds which is an interdisciplinary research center here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And our mission at the Center for Healthy Minds is to cultivate well-being and relieve suffering through a scientific understanding of the mind. And we do basic research studies. We do some translational research out in real-world settings. Much of our research is funded by the National Institutes of Health. About four or five years ago, it was gnawing at me that we were doing all this research. And while the research is extremely important and we remain unswervingly committed to continuing the research since there's still many unanswered questions, it was clear that we know enough to support the basic proposition that well being is a skill and that anyone can improve her or his well-being through practice. And that this proposition was very well supported by a large corpus of scientific evidence. It was really the beginning recognition of us really becoming activist scientists, uh, in many ways similar to climate scientists who've been doing research on the effects of humans on climate change. And after a certain point, they recognize that the scientific evidence is sufficiently compelling and action is needed to help address some of these problems. And we feel the same is true with well-being. I think most people would agree that the trajectory that we're on, not just in our nation, but in many places around the globe, has not been a particularly healthy or sustainable one. We see increases in distractibility, increases in loneliness, increases in anxiety. These are all disturbing trends, which, by the way, have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. In response to all of this, we 
realized that we really wanted to do something to be of direct benefit in addition to continuing the scientific research, not in place of, but in addition to. And this led us to form Healthy Minds Innovations, which is a nonprofit corporation. And we elected to do this as a nonprofit to underscore the fact that this is completely mission-driven. We're not doing this for any financial remuneration. We're doing this because we really believe in it. The first effort that we focused our attention on was creating this program that we call the Healthy Minds Program, which is, as best we know, the only really fully comprehensive program to cultivate well-being that is scientifically supported. We then put it into an app in order to disseminate it widely, and we've made a commitment since it's being launched through our nonprofit that we would release the app completely at no cost. So it's totally free. Of course, we accept donations. It's available throughout the world. We have not advertised it, but we now have somewhere around 150,000 users. We look forward to its growth because it also provides a platform for what we think of as citizen science. It includes measures of well-being, so a person can actually monitor their progress over time. And it also provides an opportunity to examine how different ways of interacting with the app may result in benefits to our well-being so that we can improve our recommendations for strategies that a person might utilize. I'll stop in just one moment, but let me just say that the app is built upon a framework, a scientifically grounded framework for understanding what we think of as the plasticity of well-being, the notion that well-being changes and can actually be improved through training. And this framework holds that there are four pillars of well-being that are vital. Each exhibit plasticity. And those pillars are the following. The first we call awareness, which is where mindfulness would be. It includes the capacity to focus, to regulate our attention, and also a capacity that scientists call meta-awareness. Meta-awareness is our capacity to know what our minds are doing. Now, to some listeners, that may sound a little strange. Don't we always know what our mind is doing? But it's helpful to recall some everyday kinds of situations that I think many of us have found ourselves in. I certainly have. And one example is reading a book where you might be reading each word on a page. And after a few minutes, you've been reading each word, but you recognize that you have absolutely no idea what you've just read. <laughs> Your mind is somewhere else. It's lost. And the moment you recognize that, that's a moment of meta-awareness. Now, you know, I talk about that kind of situation. Most people, I think, have experienced something like that. And that's a lapse of meta-awareness. And it turns out that meta-awareness can easily be trained through simple kinds of mindfulness practices. And so that's all part of awareness. The second component of well-being or pillar is connection. And connection is about the qualities that promote healthy social relationships. Qualities like appreciation and gratitude and empathy and kindness and compassion, all of that would be 
within connection. And we as a nation really suffer from fractured connection. And it's again exacerbated by the pandemic. In a recent scientific study that was done here in the United States, 76% of adults reported that they were either moderately or significantly lonely. And it turns out that loneliness is actually a more significant risk factor for cardiovascular pathology, heart attacks and associated cardiovascular events, than is obesity. And so this kind of psychological characteristic is cellular. It's real. It's not just a subjective state, but it also gets under the skin and impacts us. The third pillar of well-being we call insight. And insight is about self-knowledge. And it's really about getting curious about how the self is actually constructed. Um, Each of us has a narrative that we carry around in our head about ourselves. And at the extreme end of a distribution, there are people who have a very negative narrative. They have negative self-beliefs. And they actually hold those beliefs to be an accurate description of who they are. And of course, that's a prescription for depression. And so an important element of well-being is to deeply understand and recognize this narrative and what it does. And it's not so much changing the narrative, but it's changing our relationship to the narrative, to recognize that our narrative is a constellation of thoughts and is not our whole selves, so to speak. And finally, the last element of well-being is purpose. Purpose is about finding our true north in life, where our life is headed, and most importantly, aligning more and more of our everyday behavior around this sense of purpose. It turns out that purpose among people who are 65 years and older, having a strong sense of purpose is the single most important psychological predictor of longevity. And that's after carefully taking into account all other risk factors. And so, again, these elements are important, not just for our psychological well-being, but also for our physical health as well. Each of these elements of well-being exhibits plasticity, meaning they can change, and each can be strengthened through practice. And that's what we do in our Healthy Minds program. And with regards to neuroplasticity, how much can things really change? And are some people more susceptible to change than others? Really, the honest answer, the the scientist in me will say that the answer to this question is we don't know. That's really the honest answer. I can tell you this, from everything I know, anyone can show positive change. The degree to which they can change is something that we don't know. We don't know what the boundaries are, what the constraints are. Clearly, there are going to be some. And clearly, it would be irresponsible to suggest that any kind of change is possible. We know that that's not true. But we also know that we've never really subjected this proposition to adequate test. And let me give you an example from a completely different realm in neuroplasticity to give you a sense 
of what the capacity of plasticity might be and also the challenges to really uncovering it. This is an actual research study that was done by a very well-known neuroscientist who was on the faculty at the University of Alabama, actually. It took several years to obtain the necessary human subjects approval to do this study, and you'll understand why in a moment. What he did is he worked with patients who had strokes and who had paralysis on one side of their body. We call this a hemiparesis, where one side of their body is paralyzed because of damage caused by the stroke to one hemisphere of the brain. And we know that each hemisphere is connected to the opposite side of the body. So if there's left hemisphere damage, it will result in paralysis on the right side of the body if there is paralysis. So what he did in this study was simple but radical. He placed the patients in a whole body cast and immobilized the good side of their body. So he immobilized the side of their body that was intact so that that side could not move. And he put them in a cast for 16 weeks. So they were literally basically retraining their brain 24-7 for 16 continuous weeks. And some of these patients had their strokes 10 years ago. And what he found is remarkable. He found that a substantial percentage, about two-thirds of the patients that participated in this study, showed significant improvement. All of these patients were written off, essentially, as having paralysis for the rest of their life. And yet, by putting their good side of the body in a whole body cast, immobilizing it, and forcing the brain, essentially, to retrain itself, a dramatic element of plasticity was revealed that would never have otherwise been observed. And so the answer to the question that you're asking, in part, depends upon, I think, the intensity of the training. I think it's fair to say that if a person goes to a therapist once a week for 45 minutes, that's not going to be enough to retrain the brain in a significant way. But if we're willing to really practice and to undergo this kind of systematic training, I think much more change is possible than most of us considered in the past. So what you're saying is the more that you focus on what we're talking about today, these four pillars and the practice that goes along with it, maybe the brain begins to change. Yes, it's really a question of the consistency of practice, I believe. You know, it's not dissimilar from learning any other complex skill. We know that if a person wishes to play a musical instrument, that's the kind of thing that requires practice. You can't learn it right. by going to a class 45 minutes a week and that's all you do. If you don't practice on a regular basis, you will not learn. And the same seems to be true of these kinds of social and emotional qualities that are central to well-being. And we think about this as a public health issue. One of the things that I frequently remind viewers and listeners is that when human beings first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And this is something that all of us 
have learned to do. I'm sure every listener who is listening to this brushes their teeth at least a couple of times a day. This is not part of our genome. This is something that we've all learned to do because we think it's good for our physical hygiene. And what we're talking about is something good for our mental hygiene. And I would go so far as to say, and pardon me if there are any dentists listening, but I think most people would agree that our minds are even more important than our teeth. And yet we don't nourish our minds in the same way. If we spent even as short a time as we spend brushing our teeth, nourishing our mind, and we did this every single day for the remainder of our lives, I have the conviction that this world would really be a different place. And so that's what we're really aiming toward. I was listening to one of the sessions on your app, and one of the things I heard that really stuck with me is that our bodies have never been healthier, but our inner well-being is in decline. Why do you think we don't treat our minds as well as our bodies? That's a great question, and I don't think there is a simple answer to that. I think it's very multi-determined. But some elements of an answer include this. One is that we are living today in what we might think of as attention economy. Our attention is being captured by so many things around us. And there are certain forces in our society that have perfected the art of capturing our attention. So our attention is so externally focused and being captured and driven by all of these elements. And in part, it's for that reason that I think that we have a moral responsibility to help our children better regulate their attention, including the kind of misinformation. I mean, this is an age where you know we can't even agree on what ground truth is in many areas. And in part, it's because of this misinformation which is in part a consequence of our inability to focus our attention. Our attention gets captured by all kinds of things in our environment. And if we had the capacity to better regulate our attention, we could become masters of our own mind rather than allowing our minds to be hijacked by forces around us. So I think that's one really important element And along with that is the increased rate at which information is available is hogging our bandwidth so that we have less time to devote to these inner resources. So I think all of those factors contribute. I think we're at a point where we're really suffering from a crisis in well-being. You know, this is the very first time in United States history when life expectancy for certain groups is actually declining. This is a fact that's been documented by an economist, Angus Deaton, at Princeton University, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for this work in showing that there are certain sectors in American society that for the first time are showing this decline in longevity. This should be a wake-up call to us, that things are just not going the way they should be going in a country particularly like ours. You know, I think that all of this calls for renewed attention to well-being and to happiness. This is, you know, something that I think everyone should be able to embrace, particularly for our children. I mean, everyone wants their children to live a happy and healthy life. 
this goes beyond any kind of political considerations. You know, every human being has this basic wish that is common among all of us. How did you determine the four pillars? How did you come up with those? We came up with the four pillars really by investigating the evidence in the scientific literature. There are two major components. One is the scientific literature, and the second was strategies in the world's contemplative literatures for methods to cultivate those elements of well-being. So we wanted to come up with the sweet spot that was the sort of overlapping Venn diagram where there was sufficient scientific evidence and there were methods available to train those elements. That led us to these four. What's the difference between this app and other apps and what's out there? Lots of great stuff is out there, but what you guys are doing or what we can experience when we do the app is that it's not based on science. We are part of science because you were talking about the citizen scientists. This is different. It's not based on it, but actually you're using my experience and Doro's experience and everyone's experience as part of the science. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Tricia. I would put it that it's both. It's based on science and it is part of science. And the way it's part of science, let me give you just one simple and we think very innovative example. In the app, as I'm sure you encountered already, you have the option of engaging with the practices as formal meditation practices or as active practices where you can engage in them while you're doing other activities of daily living, maybe walking or doing physical exercise, commuting, doing your laundry, whatever it might be. You can have this going on in the background as long as it's not a cognitively demanding activity. You can do it really in so many different circumstances. And so one question is, what is the relative efficacy of engaging in these practices when you're doing them actively versus doing them as formal meditation practices. And the data that we have so far suggests that you can do them actively and they're really a benefit. We're doing a formal research study now with approximately 800 public school teachers. And this was initiated during the pandemic as a way to help them to improve their resilience during this pandemic. And, you know, public school teachers are a group of people that I think most of us would agree are underpaid, they're highly stressed. And during the pandemic, they have been forced to innovate in ways for which they haven't been trained to teach online. And many of them have families. And so they have young kids at home who are not in school because of the pandemic. And that just adds to their challenge. We are evaluating the impact of them going through the Healthy Minds program with the app on their own well-being and actually on how their students are doing as one of the sort of distal consequences. But one of the cool things is that about 80% of the practices that they're doing uh, they're electing to do as active practices, not as formal meditation practices. And yet the benefits that we are seeing in the data, we've looked at the initial follow-up. They did the program during the summer and we did the first follow-up in the fall, uh, in the early fall. They're benefiting tremendously. 
And so the data clearly is suggesting that these active practices are of benefit, but we still need much more evidence on that. And everyone who engages with the app is participating in the citizen science because we can use those data to help inform the science. And eventually, we believe that we can be more prescriptive in recommending certain strategies and practices to people, given the kind of person they are, that we can assess before they begin at baseline, so to speak. That's what we were going to ask too, is like a cool feature of the app is that it can be customized to create a unique user experience. So my experience could be different than Doro's experience, and I would be giving you that feedback. It's in part what I'm talking about, but what we're moving toward is really one step further, which has not been implemented yet because it depends upon more data collection. We have people take the assessment at the beginning. You may have remember it, the Simple Healthy Minds Index. And we believe that from this assessment, it will be possible to make recommendations for a person to help them choose which kinds of practices, what amount of practice may be most beneficial to improve the different elements of well-being for them. And so we can match a person's well-being profile, if you will, with the kinds of strategies that will be maximally beneficial for that person. You know, one of the buzzwords at NIH these days is precision medicine, being able to specify based on an individual's genotype. In this case, we are going to be able to specify based on an individual's phenotype that we can assess and then make recommendations based upon. We need citizen science to do this on a big scale. Hearing you describe the potential for this app makes me think that the more people who do this sort of thing, the better the world will be. You know, one of the important and really exciting scientific insights over the last decade has been around what we call innate basic goodness. You know, some people may think of this as strange, particularly in this challenging time in which we're currently living, but the data really bear this out. And and what the data show is that if you look early in life at young infants in the first year of life, it turns out that infants dramatically prefer pro-social, warm-hearted, cooperative, altruistic interactions compared to those that are selfish or aggressive. And, you know, when you think about it, for those listeners that are parents, you know, this is not so surprising, but it is exciting to see the scientific evidence bear this out. More than 95% of infants in the first six months of life, when exposed to the right circumstances, show a preference for pro-social interactions compared to those that are selfish. And this preference is really strong. And so when we engage in a practice to cultivate kindness, to cultivate warm-heartedness, we're not trying to create something from nothing, so to speak, create something de novo, but this is really the nature of what it is to be human. What it is to be human is to actually be good. This is really part of our nature. And so what we're doing is simply strengthening something that's already there. 
when we recognize that, it's really very helpful. It actually helps to understand the scientific evidence, which shows that it actually doesn't take that much practice to get these mechanisms of kindness and cooperation and appreciation going, sort of part of this second pillar of well-being on connection. You see changes on objective measures quite quickly, even after just a few minutes of practice. And these are the kinds of things that we can do all the time in our daily life. You know, one of the things that I regularly do during a work day is in the morning, I look at my calendar after I meditate, and I actually look to see all the people I'm supposed to see that day, all the appointments I have. And I just spend a few moments thinking about each person and reflecting on how I could be the most helpful uh, in that situation. And it doesn't take more than a minute or two to just think through my day in that way. And it's a simple practice that really is nourishing and can allow me to show up in the most positive way that I can to be the most helpful. This is really what we're talking about. They're not ethereal kinds of practices. They're simple, they're very accessible, and they can be easily incorporated into our everyday life. And they're practices that not only help the other person, but they help you so much. It's really just a win-win. Who has been your greatest influence? And I think I know who has. But when you talk that way, it sounds like His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been a very deep, powerful influence on my life. I first met him in 1992, and I've been lucky enough to, at least pre-pandemic, see him typically at least two or three, often more times per year. It's been an extremely important relationship in my life. He has inspired me. He has challenged me. He has supported me. Uh, he's inspired me. And so one of the things I miss most during this time of the pandemic, in, you know, I don't love to travel just to travel, but I very much miss seeing His Holiness. Mm. Actually, I was supposed to go to India to see him this last March, just when the pandemic was hitting and it was canceled at the last minute. It's a good thing it was canceled because it would have been very complicated. I'm sure I would have gotten stuck somewhere in the quarantine. How's he doing? He's doing well. I've spoken to him on several occasions over the last six months over Zoom. It's not the same, <laughs> but he's being very well protected and cared for. He's someone who thrives on interacting with people. He's doing the best he can over Zoom, but it's just not the same. And this toxic level of loneliness that you talked about under that pillar, the connection. Yeah, I mean, that was before the pandemic. Now with the pandemic, are you feeling like that's even increasing? It is. And there are actual published findings showing that. There was actually a paper published not too long ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association on rates of depression in the U.S., where it was comparing depression for one month. I think it, it was either July or August of 2020 with the same month in 2019. What they reported is that, and this is a very large sample in the United States, and what they reported is that among certain age groups, 
the rates of depression were literally triple during the pandemic compared to what they were the same month, a year before. One of the unfortunate things is that our public health officials, who I have tremendous respect for, have coined the phrase social distancing, which I think is really an unfortunate choice of terminology. We're, we're being asked to physically distance, but we can remain socially connected while still being physically distant. In fact, that's what we're doing right now. It's helpful if people can reframe this and also to recognize that the kind of recommendations that are being offered by our public health officials, when we conform to those recommendations, it's actually an act of generosity. It's not just protecting our own health, but we're actually helping others in the process. We're really engaging in acts of kindness by conforming to public health recommendations. And so I think this is all something that can be helpful in just relieving some of the challenge that we're all facing during the pandemic. And I know that for many of us, it's quite frustrating to live under these kinds of circumstances. But I think that we are blessed by having technology that allows us to at least in part overcome some of the difficulties that are imposed by the pandemic. I think reframing things is such an important skill. I actually had a friend that I spoke to today whose daughter, she's really suffering with depression and she had an uncle who committed suicide and she just can't stop thinking about it, especially entering a new year. It's just a trigger for her. We talked a lot about reframing and looking at things differently. How do you change people's perspectives on their thoughts? She's a young girl, so meditation maybe, but how do you look at that? You know, it's not something that a person can just do with an instruction just like that. You know, it would be like asking a person who has not done any physical exercise and who has terrible posture to just stand up straight. It's a good thing to do, but you can't expect them to do it if they don't have the core muscle strength to enable them to do it. It's almost cruel to ask them to do it under those circumstances. You know, I think we have to recognize that we need to approach this step by step and have realistic and modest goals. And by moving step by step, you can build up the capacity that would enable, in this case, this young girl to reframe. But you have to have certain mental capacities to do that. And they need to be built up. They just can't appear um, right. by telling them. That's why it's helpful to think about all of this as skills. When we're in the realm of skills, we know that practice is required. It's like doing a complex sport. You just can't expect to be an expert tennis player the first time you get on the court telling a person just you know, watch the ball. It's not <laughs> going to work. Right. Um, it's true with musical skills and it's true with this kind of skill. We need to be realistic about it and to help adjust a person's expectations that they're not going to change overnight. That's not realistic, but they can change and they can see progress over time. And it doesn't take that much. The most important thing I believe is consistency. One of the things that we sometimes do 
for a person who says they just can't do this is to ask them to choose themselves an amount of time every day that they feel that they can devote to this practice, whether it's as a formal practice or as an active practice. And it could be as short as a minute or two. But what we ask them to do is to make an unswerving commitment, whatever they choose, to do that every single day for a month without a lapse. However long it is, even if it's just one minute a day, do one minute a day every single day for a month. That's a way to gradually build this kind of muscle, if you will. And we find that that can be very helpful for many people. And it's a way to maximize the likelihood of success. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And as you begin to do that with the support of the app, I mean, Dora and I really were and are blown away by the app and and the pleasure of doing it, you know, and having the support of it there, asking these questions, the way it's time so you know how many minutes this session's going to be really helps break it down. And so we highly recommend the app. Yes, we do. Well, that's so kind. And particularly, it means a lot to me coming from the two of you. One last question I know, Doro, that we wanted to ask Richie was about the difference between the mind and the brain. Yes. Do you want to ask him? (laughs) It's a fundamental question. I'm not sure if it's a dumb question or not. (laughs) But I mean, what is the difference between the mind and the brain? Uh, I really appreciate you asking that. It is not a dumb question. Okay, good. (laughs) It's a profound question. You know, although some of my colleagues would get mad at me for saying this, I would say that, you know, again, the most honest answer that we can give at this point in time is we don't know. (laughs) But most scientists, I don't think, would give you that answer. I think you would get a knee-jerk reaction from a neuroscientist. If you go on the website of the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science at MIT, which is a phenomenal department, and many good friends of mine are in this department. I have enormous respect for the people in this department. But (laughs) they say somewhere on their website that the mind is what the brain does. That, to me, is an excessively narrow perspective. We know that even taking the most hard-nosed materialistic perspective that that's simply not true. Let me give you one simple example. We know from a lot of hard-nosed mainstream scientific work that the gut actually modulates the brain and the mind. And so our demeanor, our mood can change as a function of what's going on in our gut. There are about 200 million neurons in the gut and they signal the brain and modulate what's happening in our mind. And so to say that everything is in the brain is, even from a materialistic perspective, is just limited and really not accurate. More fundamentally, we don't know. One of the things that my relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama has taught me is to be humble in the face of this unknowing. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there is a phenomenon which the Dalai Lama has encouraged me to study, which we're beginning to do. And that is that for some of these individuals, particularly 
individuals who've done a lot of meditation practice over the course of their life, when they die, it's said that their body doesn't immediately decompose and they remain in this sort of transitional state for some period of time that may range from a few hours to a few days, sometimes even longer. Even though the heart has stopped beating, there's no longer any breathing. If you record brain activity, the brain is dead. So this is the kind of phenomenon that really challenges the view that the mind and the brain are the same. Of course, this is a phenomenon that really has not been studied scientifically. We don't know what the veracity of these claims are. But, you know, the Dalai Lama is someone that I think is a very sane person. You know, he's not like a woo-woo, new agey kind of person. And he thinks that there's something to this. And he's willing to give up other beliefs in the Buddhist tradition that are contradicted by scientific fact. I've known him to give up a number of these. This is an example of where kind of the rubber meets the road and we just don't know. And I think if more scientists were willing to simply say that they don't know, rather than providing a knee-jerk reaction that's based on their belief system, rather than actual fact, I think we'd be better off. Mm. I feel so much better because that's what I've been telling people. I don't know. (laughs) Thank you for confirming that. (laughs) Well, Richie, thank you for joining us today. It's just always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for letting us be part of your app. And it's just really such a good experience. So thank you for that. Well, so happy you've explored it. And I really appreciate all that the two of you are doing to benefit the world. May all of your wonderful projects be successful. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.